Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 52 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Today, we're going to talk about confidence, overconfidence, underconfidence, different levels of confidence in investing, and why it's such an important topic to talk about. Some people even think it's potentially the most important topic to talk about when it comes to individual investors, people like you and me who are trying to save and invest money for the long run. Why does confidence matter so much? Okay, investing requires a Goldilocks level of confidence. Not too hot, not too cold. You want to be somewhere in the middle, right? We want to have the confidence that the market will act in our favor in the long run, right? So we we look at historical data, we try to evaluate probabilities, we try to understand why stocks tend to go up over time, convince ourselves that there's really this fundamental reason for that to occur, right? There's a fundamental reason for stocks to go up in the long run. But we also need to have the humility to realize and the humility to know that we can't predict the short-term movements of the market. We look at stuff like Burton Mulkeel's evidence from A Random Walk Down Wall Street, which is an excellent book. If you've never seen it, I can throw a link in the show notes to A Random Walk Down Wall Street. We also look at stuff like the efficient market hypothesis. The efficient market hypothesis states that some markets especially when there's more people involved in the market and more information about whatever's trading in that market, that some markets approach what's called efficiency, which means that they can take new information about the assets. So let's look at like Apple. The stock market can take new information about Apple and synthesize that information so quickly that people will buy and sell the stock and the stock will reprice to its correct value. And that The market does that more instantaneously and more accurately than any individual can do it on their own. Again, that takes some humility to admit that the market is probably smarter than you in most cases. Of course, there are some investors who disagree with the efficient market hypothesis and have the evidence to show, have the track record to show that there might be holes in the efficient market hypothesis. Take a look at someone like Warren Buffett, right? Charlie Munger, his partner. They've beaten the market especially earlier in the career, but even to today, they've got a terrific track record against the market. And they would look at the stock market and say, efficient? Well, not always. There are lots of times where stocks are inefficiently priced, where they're inaccurately priced, and we're going to try to take advantage of that. Okay, they're really smart guys. They've been doing this a long time. For them, that's probably the right level of confidence. But for Joe Schmo to have that opinion, for Joe Schmo, who's, you know, working 50 hours a week as a, I don't know, high school baseball coach and plumber, he watches my uncle Jim Cramer two nights a week, and he thinks he's going to come out and do what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger do, that's overconfidence, right? We want to avoid that. I mean, this is the bear market just like 2001. Now, on that topic, we're going to switch gears and talk about this influential study that came out of the Columbia Business School, Columbia University, New York City. And I think it was 2011, 2012, somewhere in that range. And the results of the study, which again, it's a social science study, which 
especially recently, they, they tend to get frowned upon because the social sciences are notoriously hard to produce good evidence on. You can't run a scientific experiment like you can in a lab where you have, you know, lasers and you're testing gravity and just the data is the data. Because in social sciences, a lot of time you are relying on the way that people respond. You're relying on people's opinions on the particular day that they sat down and did your study. There might be cognitive or behavioral biases at play that push someone's answer in a certain direction and, and can really lead to misleading results. However, this Columbia study has been rerun a few different times and the evidence appears to be really sound. The results of the study are that men, on average, are overconfident. They think they know more than they actually do. And that women, on average, are underconfident. They think they know less than they actually do. One of the important takeaways of this study is that the, the scientists who wrote it, they called it honest overconfidence and honest underconfidence. And it's so important, it's because these men and these women in the study and the men and the women that you are interacting with in your daily life, and maybe even some of you men and women who are listening to this, you honestly believe that you know all these things you do. So like take men, for example, they're honestly overconfident. Someone might be whatever, 30%, 50% overconfident in terms of their knowledge. And they, they honestly believe it though. They honestly believe it. And it's not until you kind of sit down and they're able to show them through some sort of objective facts that they don't know as much as they do, until you show them that, they are going to continue to believe that they know more than they do. And we have to ask ourselves questions like, how does that play out in the real world? And how does that play out in investing? We're going to get into some of those answers. But first, I want to share just some interesting anecdotes from male and female confidence through my work here on The Best Interest, through interacting with readers, through my work at my, my professional work now, right? I work for a fiduciary wealth management firm in Rochester, New York, and I sit down with people every single day and talk to them about their personal finances, about their investing. And I'm not surprised, especially after seeing this study, it's something that I've kind of felt intuitively anyway, and I'm sure many of you have felt it intuitively anyway, that yeah, if someone's going to be overconfident in a conversation, especially about something like stocks or investing, it's probably going to be a guy. It's going to be a man, right? And if someone's underconfident or timid or, or afraid to take a stance, that person seems more likely to be a woman. And, and that's the anecdotal data that I have for sure. Because when people come to my office and they are asking about individual stock names, when they're questioning the reason for diversification, when they're talking about using leverage, right? Using leverage means you take a bet and then you borrow someone's money to increase the size of your bet. If you win, you win really big. And if you lose, you basically lose all your money and sometimes even more. Sometimes you lose someone else's money. So it's really risky to use leverage. Those kind of conversations that I have at, at work, they are 10 or 20 times more likely to happen with, a, with another man than with a woman. But when I do have conversations with women, which is pretty often and it's getting more often and I think it's awesome, those conversations are more likely to contain statements like, I don't even know where to begin or I've never been able to do this stuff, meaning like finance or investing or I've never felt comfortable with numbers and I don't know where to start or to be honest with you, Jesse, I don't even care if I'm in the room. I just want you to take care of it all for me because I'm never going to understand this stuff. And sometimes I, I would just want to pause and call a timeout and say, you know what, it, it is totally fine if, if you really are uncomfortable with math or 
if you're really uncomfortable with these topics, I don't want to force them down your throat. I don't want to make you feel anxious that I'm, that I'm forcing you to learn this stuff. But a lot of this stuff is doable, right? A lot of this stuff is something that if you sit down and you, you listen to some podcasts, hey, you, you read some blogs, you read some books, you, you follow some news, you can start to pick up some of the basics. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to act on that stuff, right? One of the problems of, of overconfidence is that some people will watch, as I said earlier, my Uncle Jim Cramer. He's not my real uncle, but they'll watch Uncle Jim Cramer and they'll say, yep, I'm now ready to be a stock picker. I'm going to go do it. Well, time out. You watched Uncle Jim Cramer for two hours a week for three months, and now you think you're ready to take on Wall Street? Like, that's classic overconfidence. But having watched those three months of Uncle Jim Cramer, that's better than knowing nothing. And you obviously learned something. And, and hopefully you've learned enough to know that you have much more to learn, but you've learned enough to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably comfortable having a conversation about investing. So going back to the way we started this conversation, confidence is a Goldilocks scenario. There's a Goldilocks zone where you don't want to be too confident, so confident that you just choose to do something stupid, but you also don't want to be underconfident, where you just kind of sit there on your hands and believe that you're never going to learn this stuff or or you're so scared that you never take any action in the first place, right? That's another thing that it's a shame and, and, and it's something I see all the time and I do my best to help people with is this idea of someone says, you know what? I think the stock market's a Ponzi scheme. I've seen the headlines. I've never really learned about it, but I, I think it's fraud and any kind of investing is fraud. I don't even really, well, now with Silicon Valley Bank, which by the way, we covered a couple episodes ago, I don't even think banks are legitimate anymore. I'm just going to stuff my cash underneath the mattress. Like, whoa, that amount of fear, to me at least, shows a, a really too much underconfidence. And, and someone's going to choose to throw money under their mattress when it's like there are much, much better options. You don't have to go all in on the stock market, right? There's a middle ground. There's a Goldilocks zone for every investor out there. Part of my mission on the best interest, what I try to do with, at work, so we try to understand an individual's risk tolerance. We try to understand how someone thinks, what they know. We want to educate them further as much as we can. And then we want to advise them, whether they go off on their own or whether they use us at work. We want to advise them on the right portfolio construction for them, the right amount of risk to take, the right amount of reward to expect, how to put their financial plan together, that kind of thing. Let's switch gears real quick because we're going to bring in some outsiders, not as guests per se, but I'm going to read from some of the stuff they've written about overconfidence, underconfidence, just the confidence game in general when it comes to investing. And this comes from a gentleman named Larry Swedro. Larry is an icon in the advisory and investment business. He's very well known. He's an excellent writer. I think he's written 17 books. And from this article, which I'll, I'll throw the, the link in the show notes, Larry writes, the biggest risk confronting most investors is staring at them in the mirror. Boom. What a, what a statement. The biggest risk, guys, it's not a bank failing. It's not interest rates going up. It's not that you make the wrong stock picks, or oh, maybe it is, only if the reason why you made the wrong stock picks is staring you in the mirror. The biggest risks to most investors is themselves. And it often has to do with their confidence or lack thereof in their own decision-making. And Larry talks about some cool research. For example, and I'm just going to go through bullet by bullet rather than, than adding too much commentary. People tend to be over-optimistic about their life prospects. 
And that optimism directly affects their final and their financial decisions. Overconfidence has been documented among experts and professionals, including corporate financial officers, as well as professional traders and investment bankers, right? Overconfidence happens everywhere. Overconfidence includes a few different phenomena. One, for example, is called overplacement. Overplacement is when you overestimate your rank in a population on some positive dimension. Classic example would be if I asked you, hey, on a scale of 0 to 100, how smart are you? Like, what percentage of people are you smarter than? Overestimation is when someone says, I'm probably smarter than 75% of the population, when really they're only smarter than 60%. So overplacement is just one example of the way overconfidence works, and it's when you just you think you're better, smarter, better looking, jump higher, whatever it is, you think you're better than you are. Now, overprecision is another type of overconfidence, and it's where you overestimate the accuracy of your beliefs. And you say something like, hey, what's the S&P 500 going to finish at at the end of this year? And you say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to finish at $4,122. And the reason why is because I ran this analysis. Like, that's a very, very precise estimate. And there's no way that any person can really believe that estimate to that level of precision. But where does this overconfidence come from, right? Now, there's one cognitive process that really supports where overconfidence comes from, and it's called the self-attribution bias. This is something that came from the research of Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize. Danny Kahneman wrote a famous book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Really well-known guys, especially in the fields of behavioral finance, behavioral economics. Now, self-attribution bias occurs in all people, right? It's something that we have to be able to recognize in ourselves and hopefully combat. And it occurs when people credit their own talent and abilities for past success while blaming their failures on bad luck, okay? In other words, when investors get something right, they tend to say, yep, that was me, that was my decision, and now I'm, I'm pretty confident in my decision-making because cause and effect, I made that decision, I got it right, boom, I'm confident. But then when that same investor gets something wrong, they tend to fail to downgrade their own confidence, right? They say, well, no, no, see, my, my call was still right, but it's, it's just bad luck that Ford had that malfunction at their plant and they stopped producing cars that day and the stock went down. That, that's not on me. That's, that's just bad luck. When I got it right, it was on me. That was my good stuff. But when I get stuff wrong, it's just bad luck. Well, no wonder overconfidence occurs in that scenario. If you blame all the bad things in your life on bad luck, you know, you're not taking responsibility for the things in your life and, and you're going to end up overconfident. Now, how does this overconfidence manifest itself in the way investors act? Individual investors trade individual stocks actively, right? And on average, they lose money by doing so. And the more someone actively trades due to overconfidence, the more money they typically lose. Studies have shown that the stocks that individual investors buy, they tend to subsequently underperform the market, whereas the stocks that individual investors sell tend to outperform the market right? Individual overconfident investors are buying the losers and selling the winners, the exact opposite of what you want to do. Then we can look at something like actively managed mutual funds that charge high fees without delivering the, the high performance that we'd expect from them. And, and that shows even further evidence that even expert individual investors in active funds 
tend to be overconfident about their ability to select high-performing stocks, or maybe maybe if it's an investment advisor, they're overconfident in their ability to select high-performing managers. Now, studies show that men, as we already talked about earlier, are more overconfident than women in decision domains, especially those that are traditionally perceived as masculine, one of which is financial matters, what we're talking about here today. That overconfidence leads to more action. You know, in this realm, action equates to trading. And one study found that consistent with higher confidence on the part of men, the average turnover for accounts opened by men is about one and a half times higher than for accounts opened by women. Turnover means trading, right? Men trade one and a half times more than women. And as a result, men pay almost 1% more per year in higher transaction costs. And their net of fee returns are far lower than women. So that's what Larry Swedro has to say about overconfidence. Not only where it comes from, but also how it affects us in our investing lives. And now I'm pulling from a second writer here. His name is Rob Engen, and he writes on a blog, a Canadian blog. Rob is Canadian. He writes on a blog called Boomer and Echo. And I'm having to reach out to Rob because I don't know why the blog is called Boomer and Echo. And maybe I should. But Rob writes, overconfidence is something that most investors have to deal with at some point in their journey. And Rob argues that there are actually two types of overconfident investors. Now, the first is kind of what we already talked about. And that's when you believe that your past investing performance has more to do with your skill and decision-making than with luck or timing or market conditions. Now, the second type of overconfidence, we haven't quite touched on it yet, but it is similar. And that occurs when you believe that you can correctly predict a future outcome, and then you make active decisions with your investments to support that belief. Now, we'll come back to the second one. The first type of overconfidence, you can avoid that or combat that by comparing your investment returns with an appropriate benchmark, with an appropriate index. So if I'm trying to beat the stock market and I'm investing, say in like mostly large cap US stocks that you've all heard of, I need to compare my results to the S&P 500 and say, am I actually doing better? Are my investment theses actually playing out? Very few people actually take notes on why they're investing in what they're investing in. Most investors I talk to who just decide to throw money at this stock or that stock, they do it because they say, oh, I've heard of Facebook. Oh, I saw it in the news. Like, that's such a poor reason. At the very least, you should have some fundamental rationale for why you're investing, and then you can compare your decisions against reality, and you can compare your results against the S&P 500. Now, the second type of overconfidence that we talked about, let's give an example there. So that type of overconfidence is essentially predicting the future and then making investment decisions according to your prediction. It's saying something like, you know what? I bet COVID is going to come back in the next eight months. And because of that, I'm going to buy more Zoom and I'm going to buy more Peloton and I'm going I'm to buy all the things that worked out the first time in COVID. And I'm going to sell all the things that didn't do well the first time in COVID. Just because I, I, I read a study and it said COVID's coming back. So boom, there's a macro prediction about the future of the world and then I'm going to adjust my investments accordingly. This type of overconfidence is, is really hard to overcome because we as humans, we love making predictions about the future. We love listening to experts who make smart, informed predictions about the future or at least have some sort of interesting facts to back up their predictions. And then even if we don't personally have a strong opinion about the future, it's pretty easy for us to be swayed 
by what someone else says. And then the way we've been swayed, right, the way that our opinions have been affected, it's pretty understandable that those opinions will trickle down into our investing decisions. So personally, this is what I do and and what Rob does too to fight this type of overconfidence is to invest in some diversified bucket of investments, predetermined asset allocation with rules in place for when to rebalance. And what I mean by that is my IRA assets are 80% in diversified stock funds, 10% in diversified bond funds, 10% in diversified alternative funds. No matter what, 80-10-10 is my target allocation. I don't really care what the future of the world is. I don't really care if COVID's coming back. My timeline is long. I'm not worried about macro events in general. And I let those funds do the diversification for me. So with that kind of asset allocation portfolio, you can pay attention to what the underlying holdings are, but you don't really need to, right? What you really need to do is look at your overall performance. You can rebalance as needed to your targeted mix. You can even set up rules in your accounts. You know, you can set up a rule at Fidelity, at Vanguard, at Schwab to say, hey, when this 80-10-10 asset allocation gets out of whack by more than, say, 3%, I want you to rebalance. Sell a little bit of the overperformers, buy a little bit of the underperformers, get back to 80-10-10. You don't even have to think about it, right? You don't really care what the future is. You're humble enough. You're, you're, I mean, we have to go back to the beginning now, right? We got to go full circle. You're confident enough to invest your money. You're confident enough to pick an asset allocation based on your age and your timeline, your risk tolerance, all that good stuff. But you're humble enough to know that you can't really predict the future. You're humble enough to know that when your asset allocation gets out of whack, you need to rein it back in and bring it back into balance. It's a mix. It's a Goldilocks mix. Not too hot, not too cold, not too overconfident, not too underconfident. And again, one of my goals here on the best interest, one of the things that I think is so cool about financial education and financial literacy is that over time, I really believe that it it pushes your confidence into that right zone. You know, I work with people and it's very, very common for a couple things to happen. It's very common for people who basically are at step zero to be underconfident. They don't even believe in their own potential. And it's fun to be able to sit down with them, start explaining some things, see them nod their head, and they say, oh, I kind of get this now. This makes a lot more sense. I didn't think I'd be able to understand it, but now I can. Great. That's awesome. It's also common to see someone who's been doing this for a little while, maybe on the side as a hobby. They, They read some Reddit forums. They subscribe to a CNBC newsletter. And then they come into my office and they honestly sit down. They sit down. It's that honest overconfidence. And they say, no offense, Jesse, I know more than you and your coworkers know. Okay, let's have that conversation. I am, I'm totally up for that conversation. I want to hear your points of view, but I'm going to push back because you're going to have to prove it to me. And I'm not going to be afraid to prove you wrong, usually because it's in your best interest if I do so, Right. If I let that honest overconfidence slide and you walk out of here thinking that you're going to take over the investing world, odds are you aren't. And if you really know what you're doing, I'll be like, wow, you are extremely educated on this. Sure, go for it. But 99 times out of 100, that honest overconfidence is true overconfidence and it needs to be tamed. It needs to be brought back to reality for your own good. Okay, so... The benefit of financial education, one of the things I love here about the best interest is that over time, 
your confidence is going to end up right in that sweet Goldilocks zone where you want it to be. The confidence to take some action, to invest your money, to understand that it's the right thing to do in the long run. The confidence to diversify your money, to build a long-term portfolio, to identify your financial goals and invest accordingly. But then the humility or the lack of confidence to say, I can't really predict what the market's going to do tomorrow. And if I need to predict what the market's going to do tomorrow, I am not allowed to take that much risk, right? Those are some humble statements. And you need to have both if you want to be a good investor. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.